scripture reading from Isaiah 7, 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. more helpful when you flip it on, so it's good. All right, now let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for the gift of getting to draw near to you. God, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for letting us know who you are, for desiring relationship with us. So God, we ask that as we, as we look at your word, uh, that your spirit would, would move that he would move in our hearts, that he would help us to see you, uh, that he would help us to behold the goodness of your son, Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book. Um, <laughs> that's the end of it. I just wanted to let you know he wrote it. No. Um, a, few years, a few years ago, he, he wrote a book called Talking to Strangers. And in one of the opening chapters, he focused on a um, an individual that history has not treated kindly, and that is the former British Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain. Now, Chamberlain came into office in 1937, and before he came into power, before he entered into politics, uh, he was a businessman. He was practical, he was plain-spoken, and he wanted to focus, his expertise lay primarily in domestic affairs. But as you might know, uh, no one really had the luxury, political leaders in the late 30s and early 40s didn't really have the luxury of getting to focus on domestic affairs. And if you're wondering, well, why not? World War II was why not. Now, the reason that Chamberlain isn't remembered fondly is that he thought that he could reason with, enter into agreement with someone that for the last 80 plus years, his, whose name has been synonymous with evil, that person being Adolf Hitler. Chamberlain began talks with Hitler in 1938 in the hopes that he could avoid yet another world war. Now, while reasoning with such a person from our perspective, you know, who have the benefit of hindsight, sounds crazy, when Chamberlain traveled to Germany for the very first time, polls showed that 70% of British citizens thought that this trip was, quote, a good thing for peace. After two more visits, Chamberlain got Hitler to sign the Munich Agreement, in which Hitler promised to set his sights no further than the Sudetenland, which was the German-speaking uh, region of former Czechoslovakia. Well, he maintained that agreement for an entire six months, and within a year, the world was yet again plunged into war. 
Chamberlain got it wrong, but he wasn't alone. He engaged in these negotiations with a lot of popular support and with, many of, uh, and with the approval of many of, British, British, of Great Britain's greatest diplomatic minds. I don't know why that is a mouthful to say. He wasn't alone in thinking that this was a good tack to take. But everyone apparently got it horribly wrong. Now, this scenario, in some important ways, mirrors the context of our passage this morning. And typically when we read Isaiah 7, the thing that sticks out to us is verse 14 in which God declares, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. But friends, this message of hope wasn't given in isolation. It wasn't some ethereal you know, quote from God, hey, someday I'm going to do something really cool. No, It was an invitation to trust that God can do the impossible in real-world affairs. It was an invitation to hope in the one who holds the future instead of mere humans who can only offer their best guesses, which we can clearly see often go astray. So this morning, we are going to look at this passage in two parts. First, we're going to look at the false hope of princes And then we will look at the true hope of Emmanuel. So first, the false hope of princes. So you might be wondering, when we started at verse 10, what on earth is happening in this passage? Well, the beginning of Isaiah 7 paints the picture. In verses 1 through 2, we read this. And excuse my pronunciation of the names, I will do my best. Here we go. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah... Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at Isaiah 11, that the time when Isaiah was writing Israel, which was once a united kingdom, had been divided. It was split between north and south. So you had Israel in the north. They got to keep the name, apparently. Uh, But they're also referred to as Ephraim, as we see in verse 2. So Israel and Ephraim in the north, and then Judah in the south. And the action of chapter 7 focuses on Ahaz, who was ruler of the southern kingdom, also called, again, Judah. And as we see in these verses, Ahaz was shook. Why? Because enemies of his kingdom, Israel and Syria, so Israel in the north and Syria just above Israel, had joined forces and were coming up against Judah. This wasn't a mere rumor of a war, fear of something that might happen. No, this was a clear and present danger. And Ahaz is terrified. But someone had taken notice of the situation, had seen the threat against Judah, and had taken note. And thankfully for Ahaz, that someone was God. And so God sends Isaiah with a word of encouragement for this shaken king. And in verses 3 through 7, we read, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sheer Jashub, your son. And the, at the end of the, uh, excuse me, at the end, of, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, 
and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. In these verses, King Ahaz receives assurance from God that the thing that he fears will not come to pass. God lays out the situation for him, demonstrating that he is fully aware of the threat. He knows exactly what Ahaz is facing. He knows just how terrified Ahaz truly is. But God encourages him, do not fear and do not let your heart grow faint. Why? Because these kings, no matter how intimidating they look, are ultimately just smoldering stumps, according to God. Now, before getting into what actually happened, I think it's worth just sitting for a moment with these verses and taking note of God's intimate familiarity with the fears that Ahaz is plagued with. God knows the situation on the ground. And he offers comfort to Ahaz, but he doesn't do so in the abstract. He doesn't come to Ahaz and say, don't fear because I'm God and I said don't fear. Or he doesn't say, don't fear because I'm sovereign and so fear is dumb. No, he comes to Ahaz and he takes the time to note exactly what Ahaz is afraid of. Why? Because God cares for his people. He cares about their fears. He cares about what they're facing. And therefore, he cares about Ahaz. And this is what you do with somebody that you love. Now, our kids, uh, we have two of them. Oliver just turned five. Uh, our daughter, Harper, is two and a half. Uh, they are pretty good sleepers, which is good if they are, it's, nece- it's necessary for them if they want to keep living in our house. Uh, they, <laughs> that's not true. But they are pretty good sleepers, and we are grateful for that. Uh, But every so often, one of them will wake up with a bad dream. And when that happens, they they usually make their way into our room and they walk right past me because they're smart. Um, Even though my my side of the bed is closest to the door, they know that one, I don't wake up easily. And two, when I am woken up, I am not a nice person. So they walk past me and and they make their way to their mother and will often say something to the effect of, you know, mom, I'm scared. And Katie, consistently, doesn't immediately respond with, you know, well, there's no reason for you to be afraid. Um, That's what would happen if they came to me. Go to bed, I'll give you something to be afraid of. No. Um, (laughs) Now, Katie doesn't immediately jump to reasoning with them and explaining, you know, there's nothing going on, there's no external threat, you're going to be fine. No, usually, I mean, pretty much every single time, Katie is greeted with one of our kids in the middle of the night, her first response is, tell me what's wrong. Now, she'll eventually go to reason and she'll eventually explain there really is nothing to be afraid of, but she gives them the opportunity to explain exactly what is on their hearts. And it communicates to our kids that they are known and loved by their mom. 
that she cares enough to know about the details uh, of what they're facing, uh, the details of their fears. And friends, that is a lot like the love that God demonstrates to us. God cares about and loves his people. And so he takes the time to know us and what we're facing. He loves you enough to know what you are facing. So right now, consider what is causing you to fear? What has you shook? This is a wonderful time of year, and, and I mean, if you believe Andy Williams, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But it's also a time in which many of our fears come to the surface. We're strapped financially, or we're thrown headlong into family drama. This is a time when many of our griefs, our losses, are just felt more acutely. And I take great comfort in the knowledge that God knows and cares about all of those things. And he demonstrates that here. He comes with comforting words for Ahaz, and he concludes this section of Isaiah 7 with these words. He says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God basically tells Ahaz, I have promised you that you are going to be okay, so trust. Believe that I am able to remain true to my word. Have faith. John Murray, the Scottish theologian, defines faith as a whole-souled movement of intelligent, consenting, and confiding self-commitment. And that is the call here. But unfortunately... Ahaz wavers. He hedges his bets, and we, we learn about his actions in 2 Kings chapter 16. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house, and sent a present to the king of Assyria. All right, so there's an enemy alliance north of Judah. Ahaz is shook. God comes to him and says, it's going to be okay. I know the situation. I'm going to take care of you. And Ahaz says, that's, that's nice, but I got it. I'm going to take care of it through these means over here. Instead of trusting in God, he aligns himself with the ruthless leader of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. And as a bold declaration of where his trust truly is, he gives this wicked king gifts of silver and gold from the house of the Lord, from the temple of God, essentially transferring his allegiance All right, that's the context of our passage, and some of you might be concerned right now. I've been talking for 15 minutes, and we're just now getting into our passage, but don't worry. The World Cup's over, I think. Um, <laughs> we're going to move quicker um, now that we're going to jump into the, the passage that's in your bulletins, and we're going to start here in verse 10. All right, so God sent Isaiah initially in verses 1 through 9. We see one encounter between King Ahaz and the prophet Isaiah where Ahaz gets to hear the word of God. Now on another occasion, God once again 
comes to Ahaz, gives him another word with the intention of getting Ahaz's heart, giving Ahaz an opportunity to turn to God, to place his trust in him. And so we read in verse 10, and again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. God knows that Ahaz has wavered. He has hedged his bets. He is not trusting in God. And so God, in an amazing act of grace, gives Ahaz another chance, an opportunity to quiet his doubts. God offers to provide Ahaz with a sign, a sign of God's power, a sign that he is able to follow through on his promises, a sign that Ahab's, or Ahaz's kingdom will remain secure. This sign, God says, could be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God basically says, ask anything. The sky is the limit. In fact, no, the sky is not the limit. You can ask all the way up to heaven anything you want. And this is like every person of faith's kind of secret dream, right? How many times have you asked God, just give me a sign? Help me to know what the right direction is. I don't even need fire from heaven. I just want to know that things are going to be okay. God is, is gifting that to Ahaz right here. And what does Ahaz do? He says, no thanks. In verse 12 we read, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And here we think, oh, faithful Ahaz, good job. Right? He's even quoting scripture. He's, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, which reads, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And what faithfulness, what respect for God, right? Wrong. See, Isaiah sees right through Ahaz's feigned faithfulness. And in verse 13, he responds by saying, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? See, the sign wasn't a test. It was an offer. And why did Ahaz refuse it? Because Ahaz had already made up his mind. He would rather trust in his own plan. He would rather trust in the tyrant, Tiglath-Pileser, than God. There was a situation on the ground that made sense to him, a path forward, and he was going to choose that. He thought he understood the political game. He, he thought he had done the right risk assessment and so he was going to, to, to do things according to his own strength and his own will. Ahaz wanted control more than he wanted God. So he rejects God's gracious offer. He would rather trust in himself and his own plan. Now, before you say, boo, Ahaz, you can, but before you go there, think for a second, how often do you do this. Desire control more than God. Now, the stakes are, are usually lower. Lives, nations aren't often dependent on the decisions that we make. But think about how many times you're confronted with a situation that seems uncertain, and instead of trusting God, you panic. You strategize. You come up with plans A through D, accounting for all contingencies hopefully, and you cling to them as though all of your hope 
as though all of the hope of the universe is dependent on your plans coming to fruition. What are we doing in those moments? Ultimately, we are committing idolatry. Now, you might think that sounds strong, but I like how the Christian philosopher James Smith characterizes idolatry when he writes, Our idolatries are less like conscious decisions to believe a falsehood and more like learned dispositions to hope in what will disappoint. See, typically when we fall into the idolatry trap, it's not because we've made a conscious decision, transferred our beliefs from thing A to thing B. No, instead, idolatry looks more like our habitually putting trust in things that aren't God and will inevitably leave us wanting. Smith continues, Existentially, the problem with idolatry is that it's an exercise in futility, a penchant that ends in profound dissatisfaction and unhappiness. Idolatry, we might say, doesn't work, which is why it creates restless hearts. In idolatry, we are treating as ultimate what is only penultimate, We are heaping infinite, immortal expectations on created things that will pass away. We are settling on some aspect of the creation rather than being referred through it to its creator. Uh, In his book on Christian doctrine, the 4th century African bishop Augustine describes this tendency within us by using the metaphor of a journey. He says idolatry is is something like falling in love with the boat rather than the destination. After our uh, our first year of marriage, uh, Katie and I moved to Boston, and uh, I was uh, we were moving there so that I could uh, finish seminary. And uh, it was an adventure. We we packed up our two compact sedans. Uh, I drove just a, a great car, a 2003 Dodge Neon. Uh, it survived all of one year in Boston. It got really mad at me that it moved, that I moved it to the East Coast where it's quite cold and just died. Um, but it, didn't, it did get us across the country, so praise God for that. Um, Katie, on the other hand, had a 1996 Geo Prism. Just I know like gearheads out there just going nuts for, for those automobiles. Um, and somehow on the journey, we managed to lose three hubcaps. So we had a, a 96 Geo Prism with one hubcap which I wanted to take off, but Katie's like, no, we're just one hubcat, we're keeping it. So we made it in, like, praise God, a miracle of grace. We, we made it from California to Boston in those vehicles with everything that we owned unpacked, and we, we caravaned with each other. It was, it was a good time. And we had a blast. Like, it was such a fun trip. But I think had it gone, like, even a day longer than it, than it went, we probably wouldn't have walked away saying that was a great trip, right? It was an amazing journey. However, it was leading somewhere. Journeys are only good for a certain amount of time. At some point, we all need a place to call home. And though there is much about this world that God has made which is good because the one who made it is good, we were built for a different shore. And so we don't want to become, as Augustine says, so engrossed in factitious delight that our thoughts are diverted from that home whose delights would make us truly happy. In our text, God comes to Ahaz and he offers him true peace and security by offering himself. But Ahaz settles for a counterfeit. And how did that work out for him? Well, probably not surprisingly, not particularly well. 
In 2 Chronicles 28, we read, For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Surprise, surprise, the tyrant didn't hold true to his word. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. So consider for a moment, right now, where are you putting your trust? Where, what are you looking to that isn't God and saying, if I have this, then everything is going to be okay? Ahaz would have been wise to listen to the words of the psalmist, put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. We too need to be careful not to put our trust, our hope, our security in princes, in family, in having a perfect holiday, in getting the right house, in getting the right title. Let's be careful not to fall in love with the boat over the destination. All right, so we've looked at the false hope of princes. Now, let's look at the true hope of Emmanuel. So seeing that Ahaz is dead set on staking his security in a, weak, in a wicked king, God responds by just smiting him. You know, fire from heaven, he's done with Ahaz, we're moving. No, that's not what God does. No, God determines to send the thing that Ahaz didn't have the faith to ask for. And in verse 14, the most famous verse in this chapter, we read this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. All right, so what does this verse mean? Well, perhaps not surprisingly, there is more to Isaiah 7.14 than it first meets the eye. It seems that this prophecy had both an immediate and a future fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment was the birth of Isaiah's own son, a son named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Say that 10 times fast. All right. We read in Isaiah 8, 1 through 4 that his boy's birth was tied to the fall of the Syro-Ephraimite alliance. So in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8, we read this. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the sons of Jeberechiah, to, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Aher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, which was the capital of Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Right, the parallel with, uh, between verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 4, and chapter 7, verse 16 is, is unmistakable. Right? For, the boy, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And then on 8.4, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. All right, now you might be thinking, if it's Isaiah's son, then how is it that the virgin is conceiving? Well, it's commonly held that Isaiah's first wife, the one who bore to him Sha'ar Yashub, had died earlier, and that Isaiah was about to remarry a young woman who, at the time that he was talking to Ahaz initially, would have been a virgin. 
So Isaiah is issuing this word from God that before his anticipated child knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, God would bring about the destruction of the alliance that Ahaz so feared. And this child's name, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, means something like, the spoil spreads, the prey hastens. That message was as ominous as it sounds. So then, was God present with his people in their emergency? Well, the answer is yes. As Ray Ortland writes, the message of Meher Shalal Hashbaz's young life was Emmanuel, God with us. The enemy forces are doomed because God is with his people. Now, you might be thinking, well, that sounds cool, but that's not really a sign as deep as heaven or as high, not deep, heaven, as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And that is where the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy comes in. It took place over 700 years after Isaiah originally spoke to Ahaz. But in Matthew 1, we read this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This would have been a sign as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, came and defeated an alliance far greater, far more intimidating than the Syro-Ephraimite alliance. He came and destroyed the powers of sin and death by taking them head on. And he did this so that we could reach our true home, the home whose delights would make us truly happy. Now God, it seems more often than not, comes through in the most unexpected ways. Right? When he decides to come to his people, truly embody the name Emmanuel, God with us, he does so by being born into a peasant family in a stable. But it just goes to demonstrate the lengths to which he is willing to go to show us his immense love. So friends, consider, where is your hope? What are you trusting in? Where are you placing infinite expectation on, uh, expectations on things that will ultimately pass away? Our God invites you now to look at the sign that he provided 2,000 years ago, one that went as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven, so that you might place your hope, your confidence in him. Earthly alliances are tenuous and fleeting, but our God is faithful. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we, we thank you and we praise you for your faithfulness to us. God, we thank you that your faithfulness remains even when we are faithless. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to trust in you. Lord, may we look at the sign that you provided 
But the son born to a virgin in a stable 2,000 years ago, may that be enough for us. Lord, may, may we find our hope, our peace, and we place our trust in you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.